verses 1 through 7 this morning. As we do every Sunday, let's read together and let us read aloud. Verse 1. Now in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. Well, I heard all the names pretty much. Uh, last night nobody said anything to, in, that, in that verse. <laughs> verse 6. Whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them, Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you and bless you for this passage of Scripture that we want to look more closely at now. We ask that you would bless and anoint us and fill us with your Holy Spirit. For indeed, Lord, we not only want to gain greater understanding of your word. We, we want the understanding, Lord, to be able to, to be lived out and, and, and practiced and applied, Lord, to our lives. And so we need your spirit both for understanding and for doing. And we ask you, Lord God, to, to just open our minds and our eyes and our ears and our hearts today that we might rejoice in the wonders of your, of your word and of your love. And we do ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. You all may be seated. Most of us may not, uh, well, most of us may be familiar, I should say, uh, with the term megachurch. Megachurch. It usually describes a Christian congregation of a few thousand people led by a large or growing staff of pastors, ministerial directors of one sort or another, and a good number of secretarial and maintenance personnel. That uh, kind of describes what you would see at, uh, at a mega church. But aside from, from the description that I've just given you of the number of workers, when you look at the early church, when you look at that first church, after Pentecost, the early church by the time of this account in chapter 6, without any, doubt, without any doubt, could also be called a mega church. Thousands and thousands of people already gathered and gathering continually to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, to be taught by the apostles the word of God, 
to hear the stories of, of the power of God through Jesus Christ and through the power of His Holy Spirit. And the numbers continued to swell. You see now from the, the viewpoint of the Sanhedrin, and I want to kind of bring them back into the picture again for just a moment. But from the viewpoint of the Sanhedrin, their consternation, their dismay, as I said from their viewpoint, was well founded. Because this new movement from outside of their tradition, outside of the status quo, was growing and it was growing rapidly. It was no longer a mathematical problem of addition. Early on, we heard that God was adding to the church daily those who would be saved. There was 3,000, then there was 5,000. And if we added that, that would be 8,000. And then more and more would still come, maybe over 10,000 people. But now it was no longer this mathematical problem of addition. It was for these Sanhedrin and these religious leaders a matter of multiplication. More and more people were flocking to meetings. Greater numbers were becoming disciples. And because their chief meeting place was still the temple courts, the evident growth had to be a source of frustration to the Jewish religious leaders. The church had become a megachurch. But growth and size do not always solve all problems. Growth and size do not always solve all problems. The bigger the church, the bigger the problems. The more people are involved in church, the more people come, the more problems you have. That's why I've always said, and really it wasn't a quote of mine, but I've heard some people say this, and that is that ministry would be a great thing if it wasn't for the people. Ministry would be a wonderful thing if it wasn't for the people. But some people tend to have problems with big churches too. And by the way, that's not the time to get up and leave. I mean, there can be a lot of complaints within that kind of setting. You know, well, the church is too big. There's not enough love. I don't see any enough love. I've always wanted to ask them, aren't you supposed to be the one loving? Let not the example be someone else. Let it be you. So that's a bad excuse to leave because you don't feel any love because you, you don't have it yourself evidently either. So it's not the time to get up and leave. That's the time to get up and serve. Why? Because there's more people that need help. That's more obvious. That's more evident. So if the early church had by this time over 10,000 people, let's say, between ten and 12,000 people, Consider then the number of staff to people. Consider the ratio, the number of staff to people. Today at megachurches, there's hundreds of people on staff to serve the thousands that are there. But here we have 12 men caring for over 10,000 people, which makes approximately one man per almost 1,000 people. It's a lot of people if you consider it in terms of ratio. So with that in mind, getting that little picture as, a, as an establishment of our understanding of this passage today. Now in those days, verse 1, when the number of the disciples was multiplying. So that means it was a continuous thing. From one day you might go from 10,000 to 11,000, as it were. 
But there were still the twelve who they were counting upon to take care of all of the teaching and preaching and business of the church. So in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their, widow, their widows I'm sorry, were neglected in the daily distribution. Because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Now there are those who believe that this problem that arose was one of Satan's attacks on the church. And that is certainly possible. As a matter of fact, I would want you to consider it very strongly here today. It is certainly possible since Satan always likes to attack the church from within. Remember back in chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira. They already had a little bit of opposition from outside, but Ananias and Sapphira were inside. And in this particular case, his attempt would be that of dividing and conquering by raising one group in the church against another, the Hebrews and the Hellenists. Satan likes to divide and he likes to conquer. That is one reason why my heart always seems to be just sunk when, when I hear of, 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 of church splits or when I hear people are, are dividing up people within a flock of, of believers. It's a burdensome thing. Because they've taken their eyes off of the Lord and the enemy has, has gotten them to think that it's more important to divide and to conquer than it is to be humble and submissive. And so this passage here, when you consider Hebrews and Hellenists, this passage is not referring to different nationalities, but about two different types of Jews that were within the church. And by the way, remember that the church began with all Jews. The Hellenists, or as the King James Version says, the Grecians, were those born outside of Israel who had Greek names and they spoke the Greek language and they were somewhat, uh, they had somewhat adapted to the Greek culture as well in their, in their life, wherever they had come from, wherever they had lived. The Hebrews, on the other hand, were those born in Israel and who spoke primarily Hebrew and Aramaic. So now you see the, the difference between these two particular groups that are mentioned. But you can also see the tension. Because the Hebrews were, were narrow and they were rigid in their beliefs and in their actions with very few interests outside their own world. Why? Because they had the temple. They had the things of God. They should have really concentrated on the Lord a lot. And that could have been a good thing for them to be focused on the Lord all the time. But they didn't care for the outside world and they didn't care for the cultures of the other, uh, of the other parts of the world. The Hellenists, on the other hand, were generally more ready to adapt to certain features of the Gentile world, which made the Hebrews regard the Hellenists as unspiritual compromisers, while the Hellenists considered the Hebrews as holier-than-thou purists and traditionalists. So can you see the tension here? Now they're all Jews, but they're in two camps. And this is very important to understand. You see, we saw in previous chapters now, in the church, in the church, 
We saw in previous chapters that believers contributed to a common fund for the benefit of the needy. And as time went on, more people would probably have found jobs and no longer needed the help. So they were then able to give into this common fund as well so that they could help other people who were in need. But widows, and that's a significant thing here, widows, however, couldn't just go out and get jobs. A widow suffered more than a lot of other women, if not more than any other women, in those cultures, both in the Jewish and in the Greek cultures. But... It was, un, it was not uncommon in those days for widows actually to starve to death. Especially among the Gentiles. Now it needs to be noted that the law of Moses <coughs> shows God's special concern for widows and, <coughs> and others who had no one to help them. God's law to the Jewish people showed God's special concern. Exodus 22, for example. Excuse me. Exodus 22, verse 22 says, You shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. If you afflict them in any way and they cry at all to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will become hot and I will kill you with a sword. Your wives shall be widows and your children fatherless. I mean, that is a tremendous warning that God gives to people who don't care for others who are in need. If I hear their cries and you're afflicting them, my wrath will become hot. I don't think anybody wanted God's wrath to be hot because God doesn't just warn. He doesn't just threaten, in other words. God acts. And so this was a tremendous warning for them. Deuteronomy 10 verse 18 says, He administers justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the stranger. Giving him food and clothing. Were they listening to what God was saying? About how the Jewish people needed to have the same kind of heart toward people that weren't like them? Or the people that that couldn't help themselves? You see, this is where you get that little phrase that people think is in the Bible. You know, God helps those who help themselves. This, This part here just throws that out the window. Why? He helps those who cannot help themselves. But he helps those who cannot help themselves through those who he has blessed. His people. Even the Apostle Paul would begin a lengthy discourse on widows with this statement in 1 Timothy 5 verse 3. He said, honor widows who are really widows. And I would encourage you to read all of 1 Timothy 5 after verse 3 down through verse 16. Where it talks there about widows. But he begins that by saying, honor widows who are really widows. That goes even beyond the Old Testament that says take care of widows. Well, you take care of them, but you honor them as well. Because they're special to God. So now, the daily distribution, as we've seen it here in verse 1, the daily distribution of charity, which, by the way, the word distribution is the Greek word diakonia, from which we get the word deacon from. And I'll talk about that word a little later on. Which, again, by the way, uh, these men that we read of earlier were not called deacons. They were, uh, so we we don't see that word applied, but this is what they do. Well, we'll talk about that again in just a moment. 
But the daily distribution of charity, the diakonia, was in the hands of the Hebrew believers. The Hebrew believers, as opposed to the Hellenists, as it were, the Hebrew believers took care of the daily distribution. And apparently, some of the Hellenist believers thought that the Hebrew widows were receiving better care. That's why they bring the complaint. Our widows are not getting any care. And there will always be that little thought that says, you're taking better care of your people than you are taking care of our people. The strange thing is that they were all their people. (laughs) Because they were all Jews. Now they were all Jews who were believers in Jesus Christ. But nonetheless, there were still these little divisions, as it were. And this oversight, I'm sure it was not deliberate. But what we discover is that there was limited administration and supervision. In some cases, you'd have to even think that it was poor administration and poor supervision. That some people were getting overlooked. I am sure with all my heart that they did not do this purposely. Or deliberately. And I bring that up because it's interesting that the enemy loves to use unintentional wrongs to start a disagreement or a quarrel that might just lead to a split. The enemy likes to get there and wedge in between those little differences, no matter how big or how small they may be, but he likes to drive those in between unintentional wrongs. There's a tremendous difference, you know, if somebody really wants to hurt somebody. That already in itself divides them. But they weren't trying to be divisive. They just weren't, being, they weren't able to handle all that was going on. Because there were so many people that needed to be cared for. But that's how the enemy begins. He begins his work by, by looking for that little bit of space just to drive a wedge right between the people. Unintentional wrongs. You know, you know, here again, I mean, it, it, it burdens pastors to no end with it. You know, people will leave the church because somebody had said, you know, well, this person offended me, that person offended me. Well, did you talk to them about it? Maybe they didn't even know they offended you. Well, I don't want to do, I don't want to, I'll give it to God. Well, no, they, you, you're not called to give it to God. You've got to take care of that. But it's easier to take your complaints, you know, and go someplace else than it is just to deal with something that may have been just unintentional. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't think, as I look around here today, I don't think any of you got up this morning with a desire to hurt anybody. I don't think any of you got up this morning, looked in the mirror and said, you know, we're going to hurt somebody today. We're going to slap them right across the face. We're going to just bop them one. Now, you didn't get up thinking that, did you? But sometimes we might say something that might offend somebody, and, and we didn't even know it. And I'm always grateful if somebody comes and says, you know, you offended me. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know that. Oh, please forgive me, because I don't want to be held responsible for something I did, you know. So I want to make sure we clear it up so that we can, hey, bury the hatchet and bury the handle of the hatchet as well. Because some people like to bury the hatchet head, but they leave the handle exposed so they can pick it up later and say, oh, you remember this? Wait a minute. Bury the whole hatchet. But you see how Satan, that's Satan working in between people, driving a wedge. We've got to be spiritual, folks. We need to be spiritual and say, this is not right. And, and, and this is good because this is what it's leading up to. I mean, doesn't, doesn't Satan just love to divide the membership and discourage the leadership? He loves to divide membership and he loves to discourage leadership. But praise God for the wisdom of the apostles. Look at verse 2. 
Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples. Folks, we have to be spiritual about these things. The twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and he said, that means they summoned as many of the people as possible, brought them all together. And they said to them, it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Now don't get the wrong idea about what they're saying to the people. What this is telling us is there were so many people but few apostles. It was very similar to what Moses faced in the wilderness with a couple of million people to care for. This was just thousands. Moses had to care for millions. And when the people went to talk to Moses, they had to stand all day and wait in line just to air their complaints or or make certain requests that were necessary. As a matter of fact, uh, Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, gave some very important suggestions and advice. More than suggestions, really, but advice to, to Moses. In Exodus 18, verse 17, Moses' father-in-law said to him, Did I mention his name is Jethro? Okay. He's not the one from the Beverly Hillbillies. Just want to make that clear. So Moses' father-in-law said to him, The thing that you do is not good. And the fact that he was staying up all day and everybody was in line. And, and he says, but Both you and these people who are with you will surely wear, yourse- wear yourselves out. For this thing is too much for you. You're not able to perform it by yourself. Listen now to my voice. I will give you counsel and God will be with you. Now listen carefully to what Jethro tells Moses. Stand before God for the people so that you may bring the difficulties to God. First of all, take it to God. Then look at the next part. And you shall teach them the statutes and the laws. And show them the way in which they must walk and the work they must do. You're not alone. Teach them the Word of God so that they can stand with you. They can see the work that you're doing and they will do the work that you're doing. Pretty wise. Verse 21, Moreover, you shall select from all the people able men. Notice, qualifications such as fear God. Men of truth, hating covetousness qualifications and place such over them to be rulers of thousands rulers of hundreds rulers of fifties and rulers of tens and let them judge the people at all times then it will be that every great matter that shall bring they shall bring to you but every small matter they themselves shall judge if it's a great matter and you need to know it you'll be there and you'll be fresh and you'll be awake and aware to the things that they bring you because they're great matters but if they're small little things other people can handle those Teach them how to do it. So it will be easier for you, for they will bear the burden with you. If you do this thing and God so commands you, in other words, don't do it because I tell you, but do it because God is leading you to do it, then you will be able to endure, and all this people will also go to their place in peace. Well, how similar that sounds to what we read this morning, here in Acts chapter 6. Because the apostles made it clear that they were to remain faithful to their primary calling. And Jethro was trying to wake up Moses to the the primary calling that God had given to him. But the apostles made it clear they were to remain faithful to their primary calling, which was to pray and to preach and to teach the Word of God. Now, it would not be pleasing or acceptable for them to abandon that primary call 
to serve tables. Now let's understand what it means to serve tables. Because most of the time we just think that it's a matter of, of all of a sudden, you know, at one point in time, you know, there's Peter, you know, studying the scriptures. And then they say, hey, Peter, you know, restaurant's open. Okay. And he closes the book and he puts on his apron and he goes out there and says, can I take your order, please? And we have this idea. Now, now, please hold that thought because that's part of the idea. But that's not all the idea. That's not all the thought here. Because when it talks about tables, that very same word is the same word that was used for the tables of the money changers in the temple. So how does this coincide? Well, when they were called now when they're saying that we're called to the Word of God and not to serve tables, they're saying we're not called to the money tables where the distribution of monies and the distribution of provisions to the needy among the fellowship were to be dispersed to the people who had need. But this was just common sense. It was just common sense. There was no reason for the apostles to do something anyone could do when they could do things no one else could do. I like that thought. (laughs) There's no reason for the apostles to do something anyone else could do, distributing to the needs of people, when they could do things that no one else could do because they were called to do what they were called to do, which was to preach and to teach the Word of God and to pray. So it wasn't really a question of position, but of priorities. It was a question of priorities. And it wasn't, and folks, please, this is the emphasis that I want to make here. It wasn't that the apostles thought it beneath them to run the errands of the church. We, to this day, still have to run the errands of the church. We, to this day, if we see something wrong, if any of the pastors here see something wrong with anything going on as we come up or as we drive up, you know, uh, we don't leave it for somebody else. It's not beneath us to go pick up trash. We do that. It's instinctive. Why? Because the Lord said that we're called to be servants first. We're all servants here. I don't like to drive into the parking lot, and I, and I did this the other day, drive into the parking lot, and I see this, this big cardboard thing out there, which is a cardboard thing of, of some uh, adult beverage out there, you know. And, uh, so I, and, and that's not that anybody left it from here, okay, from... It's, uh, you know, after midnight or whatever, our lights at some point in time, they turn off, people drive through and they drop their bottles and stuff because they're very respectful of, of the church and of God and all of that. And so they figure, well, God can take our trash and, you know. And, and so, you know, we'll drive through and we'll pick it up. Why? Because this is our church and we want to we give it a good witness to the community. But I'm not going to drive up and say, hey, go, go pick it up. When there's nobody there, who am I talking to? I'm talking to me. Come on, pick it up. So we're all called, you know, nothing's beneath us. At the same time, at the same time, it's a matter of putting first things first. One great illustration of this is in another meaning of the phrase, serve tables, which I wanted you to remember, which is serving tables. Because the most common meaning of this phrase is waiter. Waiter. So I'm going to give you tips for waiters. Let me give you a tip. Save your money. Okay. 
In one sense, in one sense, we Christians and members of the body of Christ are all called to be servants. But God gifted the apostles and gave them to the church to teach His Word. As the Word spread throughout the multitude, and needs then became apparent, as we see here at the beginning of, verse, of, of chapter 6. Those who faithfully received the Word were raised up by the Lord to meet these needs. Consider Ephesians 4, verses 11 and 12, where Paul says, And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. And if you look carefully at verse 12, what it's telling us is that the pastors and teachers and all the rest that have been mentioned here are given to the church for the equipping of the saints to do the work of the ministry. That is literally what it means, to do the work of the ministry. And it is for the building up and the edifying of the body of Christ. Everybody is to have their part in that. And so there are those gifted who wait upon God's Word, as the apostles were to wait upon God's Word in prayer and in teaching. And then there are those gifted men and women who waiter God's Word. There's a, somebody gave this illustration, I think I thought it was great. You don't go to a four-star restaurant, in a, you know, a four-star restaurant, you know, kind of a really fancy place, and the, the chef cooks all the meals, and then he plates them, and then he takes them, and he goes out and serves, you know, with his towel, you know, brushing off because it's so hot. And, and then he takes them and lays them down at, 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 at all the tables, and, 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 and he doesn't ever come out of the kitchen. Why? Because that's where he's called to be. He has sous chefs, which are the ones that plate everything after he's cooked it, and then they prepare it. And then there are the waiters who come and take the tables and the tray, or should they, you know, and they got the, and they take them out to the tables, right? Everybody has their job. At some point, somebody says, I'd sure like to visit with a chef because he made such a wonderful meal. Have him come out, please. And sometimes they'll sneak out and just, oh, thank you very much, thank you very much, you know, for, you know and all of that. But, but for the most part, they just stay in the kitchen because that's where they're called to be, putting everything together. So there are those who wait on God's Word because they, they're doing what needs to be given out. And there are those who waiter God's Word. Now, this is a kind of an interesting thought. But it's a good thing, and, and please bear with me. It's a good thing that it was the daily, ministra- or the daily ministration or the daily distribution that was strained and not the praying and the ministry of the Word. It's a good thing that what they were worried about was the fact that people weren't being ministered to, but they weren't complaining about the Word of God. That's what I'm saying. It's a good thing that it was the daily distribution that was strained and not the praying in the ministry of the Word. In other words, they, they, there weren't complaints that the Bible teachings were too dry or that the instruction was repetitive or that the, the instruction is, and here's that great word, boring. There weren't any of those words here. That's not what they were complaining about. I don't know what it is in some people today, but they really think that they are, they are called, they're, they're the um, 
They are the Roger Eberts of, of, church, of the church. And they're called to criticize everything that goes on in the church. They come in, I don't like this, I like that, I like that. Oh, thumbs up for this, oh, thumbs down for that. Who called you to be that? And we have to answer to the Holy Spirit. We have to answer to the Lord. I don't, I don't come to this pulpit here, you know, frivolously. I don't come up here just thinking, well, we'll get by the day. I've got to think very carefully. I've got to pray. I've got, I've got to study. I've got to know that what I'm going to give you is everything God wants you to have. But you need to listen. Pay attention. I mean, there will always be those who complain about any and everything. There will, there will always be that. Those I will indeed leave to the Lord. But what we learn in this passage today is that, and, and I, I don't want you to miss this, what we learn in this passage today is that unmet needs, unmet needs means that believers who are receiving the Word of God need to step up and serve tables. Unmet needs means that believers who are receiving the Word of God need to step up and serve tables. Notice in verse 3. What we've received so far in verse 2 is that it says, uh, you know, the disciples, or I should say the apostles said, it is not desirable that we should leave the Word of God and serve tables. Therefore, therefore, brethren, speaking to the multitude, seek out from among you, Seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. We will give ourselves to our priority. We will give ourselves to what God has called us to do. It doesn't mean that we won't help someone, we won't pray for someone, we won't visit with someone. It doesn't mean any of that. It just means that we're going to... Keep first things first here. But you seek out from among you. Then you let us know who they are. And make sure they have these qualifications. Did you notice the qualifications? Good reputation. Full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. Whom we may appoint. Now that's an important thought here. That we may appoint. I'll, I'll, I'll explain in just a moment. But he says, we'll give ourselves continually. The prayer to the ministry of the word. Your help will free us to serve you better in God's Word. The qualifications now that were given here that the apostles described do not have anything to do, and I want you to listen, it, they do not have anything to do with wealth, they have nothing to do with business success, has nothing to do with influence. They have everything to do with inward character and nothing to do with outward appearance. Everything to do with inward character, not with outward appearance. The apostles certainly valued the input of the congregation. That's a good thing. For we also value your input. There are times when you see things we don't see. And God will allow you to help us in seeing some of those things. That will be helpful to the church. But they valued the input of the congregation. But this wasn't an exercise in congregational government, as some people believe. It wasn't an exercise in congregational government. Because the decision rested on the apostles. Did you notice that it says, whom we may appoint? You will seek out. You'll let us know. But we'll appoint. 
There are four prerequisites mentioned here for any service in the church. And I think it's important for us to go over that. Four prerequisites mentioned here for any service in the church. The first is that they be from among you. Did you notice that? Seek out from among you. Not from outside of this multitude, but from among you. Not outside of this church, but from among you in this church. Seek out those from among you. This reminds us that any person seeking to serve the church must have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. This person must be born again. Remember that this was now the the, the body of Christ and those that were among you are those that have come to know Christ as their Lord and Savior. So we're not going to get somebody that doesn't have that prerequisite. You need to know Jesus Christ. You need to be born again of the Spirit of God. It's a sad thing when you find out that people are serving in certain churches and they've never accepted Jesus, they never accepted the truth about Jesus, or never received Jesus as Lord and Savior. But I don't care what you do in the church. If, if, you, you know, if you're in, on the maintenance crew or you fix one thing or another or you work in whatever it is, you need to know Jesus. The second prerequisite is that they're to have a good reputation. Now, by the way, the word for reputation in the Greek is the same word that is used for testimony. You see, for Christians, our reputation is in God's hands because our reputation is not so much a reputation like we have in the world. Our reputation is our testimony of Christ in our life. Good reputation, then, they are to be men of honest report. We are to have people in the church of honest report, men and women of honest report. You have an honesty in your life, an integrity in your life. One good reason is given to us by the Apostle Paul, who writes of an elder in 1 Timothy 3, verse 7, and he says, moreover, he must have a good testimony. Do you notice that? A good testimony, good reputation, same thing. You must have a good, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, which means outside of the church lest he fall into reproach in the snare of the devil. Now, not, not everybody outside of the church loves Christians. But they cannot deny if we live in integrity and if we live in honesty, if we live our lives upright before them, they cannot deny that and they have to respect that. I believe the problem today is that there are so many people on TV that are charlatans and that, that uh, you know, are, are just false prophets or false apostles of one kind or another that they give this air as, that this, this is how Christians are, are, are to be. And, 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 and the world looks at them and has no respect whatsoever toward them because their reputation is that of putting, pulling the wool over people's eyes. But it should not be that with a believer in Jesus Christ. Whether the world wants to love us or not, that's, that's up to them. But if we have a good testimony before them, they cannot bring a charge against us before God. Lastly, full of the Holy Spirit. Well, not lastly, I've got another one. Thirdly, full of the Holy Spirit. There was evidence in these men's lives that the Spirit was working in and through them. One way of knowing if a person is filled with the Holy Spirit is to look at the fruit in their life. Look at the fruit in their life. As a matter of fact, Jesus even said that if you're going to judge anything, you need to judge the fruit in a person's life. You shall know them by their fruit. That's what he said. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. Start there. 
If a person does not have love, he says he's a Christian, and he says he's willing to serve the Lord, but if he does not have love, then he doesn't have... That's his fruit. And you can see that more evidently than anything else. When a person does not have love, and, and, and everything that he does from that point on, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, if, he doesn't, if, if, if none of those things are seasoned with love, then there is no good fruit. To be full of the Holy Spirit is to begin with the love of Christ, the joy of Jesus, the peace of the Lord, the long-suffering, the patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness that we are to have as, as servants of the Lord. Gentle and self-controlled. Against such there is no law. And if a person isn't being controlled by the Holy Spirit, how will they be effective in the ministry given to them by God? So being full of the Holy Spirit is a tremendous prerequisite here. Along with the fourth one, which is wisdom. Wisdom is generally understood as the proper application of knowledge. Wisdom is generally understood as the proper application of knowledge. Let me just say that knowledgeable men are not always wise men. Knowledgeable men are not always wise men. They might be wise guys, but they're not wise men. Big difference. There are people who know lots of stuff, but they don't always know what to do with that knowledge. You can have a whole lot of knowledge, but what do you do with it? To be full of the Holy Spirit and to be full of wisdom, when you put those two together, when you put those two uh, prerequisites together, that is to be both spiritually and practically minded. That is why he doesn't just say to be full of the Spirit, or he doesn't just say to be full of wisdom. He says to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. Why? Because we need to be spiritually minded and we need to be practically minded. Wisdom is the proper application of the knowledge that God has given to us. So may I say to all of you wise people, may I say to all of you wise people, wise people, number one, be aware of your relationship to God. Wise people. Wise men and wise women. Number one, be aware of your relationship to God. For a person who has no humility before God is not wise. A person who has no humility before God is not wise. So be aware of your relationship to God. He is God, we're not. He's all-powerful, almighty, all-knowing, ever-present. And who are we? Proverbs 9, verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord itself. Just the very statement itself. The fear of the Lord puts us down on our faces before God in reverence and respect. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If we want to be wise, we need to fear God. We need to know what our relationship is before God. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So wisdom and knowledge are so much a part of us fearing the Lord properly and wisely. Secondly, wise men and women, be one who is slow and careful about what you say. Be slow and careful about what you say. Be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, as we're told by James, who, who quotes from the Proverbs. In Proverbs 17, verse 28, I love this. It's Proverbs 17, 28 says, Even a fool is counted wise when he holds his peace. Even if a fool just keeps his mouth shut, he, the people say, he's wise. That's right, that fool's wise because he didn't open his mouth. 
And then it says when he shuts his lips, he's considered perceptive. But the minute he opens his mouth, boom, bye, it's gone. So we as wise people, as we should be, should always be wise about how we say what we say and when to say it. Be slow and careful about what you say. Wise men and women, number three, be one who is teachable. Be teachable and willing to learn a lesson. Be teachable and willing to learn a lesson. Proverbs 9 verse 9 says, Give instruction to a wise man and he will be still wiser. Because a wise person does not end up being someplace where he says, I'm the wisest of all. Because I've achieved all of this success of wisdom. Oh, I'm so better, much better, wise, much wiser than all of you. No, a wise person is one who says, I can still be wiser. I'll be teachable and willing to learn. Give an instruction to a wise man, he'll be still wiser. Teach a just man, he'll increase in learning. That's the way we should be as Christians. None of us have already achieved everything. Even the Apostle Paul in Philippians tells us that he had not attained unto perfection yet. And that was toward the end of his life. He had not yet attained perfection. Paul was wise. There was even still room to learn more. In the last book of Paul's writings, 2 Timothy, when he's about ready to go to his death, Paul asks for the books and the parchments. Why? Because he was ever learning and ever growing in the knowledge of Christ, even to his death. Folks, that's wisdom. And remember this. These are the prerequisites for being what? To just to serve in the church cafeteria. That's it. Full of the Holy Spirit. Full of wisdom. Good reputation. A believer. The prerequisites just to serve tables. When the disciples, and I should say when the apostles said all of these things, notice verse 5, the saying pleased the whole multitude. Why? It was wisdom from God. The saying pleased the whole multitude and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. And when they prayed, they laid hands on them. Isn't it interesting? First they prayed, and then they laid hands on them. And you know what they did when they laid hands on them? They prayed. <laughs> so they prayed before they prayed. It's a wonderful thing. Then the word of God spread. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. So here in verse 5, we find a demonstration of the spiritual gift of the word of wisdom. As God began to give them wisdom, they chose certain men, Stephen and Philip and so on. And the multitude was pleased with the decision of the apostles. The apostles had spoken with a word of wisdom and they said, this is right. I'm sure that the Hellenists were also very pleased, especially pleased, with the fact that the men chosen were more than likely all Hellenists themselves. How do we know this? Well, they all had Greek names. None of these were Hebrew names. These were all Greek names. Telling us that the apostles showed a great sensitivity to the, to the offended Hellenists. 
by appointing Hellenists to take care for the widow's distribution. Isn't that a wonderful thought? These are your people. You know them. You speak their language and you know what they need. You take care of them. We've brought you alongside of us so that you can do this. What a blessed thought that is. The first one that is mentioned, of course, is Stephen, who would become the first martyr. As we'll see in the next chapter. He's described, notice, as a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost. Full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And he was certainly going to demonstrate this soon enough. The next was Philip, who should be distinguished from the Apostle Philip. Different person. He would become the first missionary of the church, as we shall see later in chapter 8. But these two men, on behalf of the others, but these two men serve to illustrate what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 13, when he says, For those who have served well as deacons, obtain for themselves a good standing and, and great boldness in the faith, which is in Christ Jesus. You see, it's not just a matter of saying, you know, if I'm going to serve tables, I don't have to do anything else. No, you're a witness for Jesus Christ. Stephen served tables and he preached to the religious leaders. Philip was a, a table server, but he just made himself available that he you know, could travel pretty fast and he could get around and he's all of a sudden preaching the gospel to people who needed to understand God's word. You see, it's more than just being a slave and a servant. Nothing is, is known about the next five men mentioned except for the fact that Nicholas is mentioned as a proselyte of Antioch, which, which tells us that whatever he was before he became a Jew, because that means that he converted to Judaism, whatever he was before he became a Jew, he became a Jew, then he became a Christian. So that, that's just an interesting path that, that he took. Because they referred to his uh, uh, conversion to Judaism as a proselyte. But so now, as we stated earlier, <clears throat> the, the Hellenists had nothing more to complain about. They had nothing to complain about any longer. They, they couldn't feel cheated anymore. Why? Because they were, they were, uh, their complaint was heard and it was met with wisdom. And this teaches us all. It teaches all of us that ministry always starts with service. Ministry always starts with serving. The apostles served the people by taking their hearts' uh, uh, concerns seriously. And they waited upon the Lord, and they acted upon it, and they involved the people. And they, but then when, when the people said, these are the people we, we believe in, and the apostles prayed, and they chose these seven men. By the way, the number seven is not important so much. We could say it's a perfection number and all of that. But you could also say that each one had a day of the week that they could serve at the table. So it's, it's nothing major here. But, but uh, it's, it, everything begins with service. Joshua. Joshua was a great conqueror. But he started out as what? The servant of Moses. David. Humbly and quietly tended sheep for his family before he was chosen to be king of Israel. Which again reminds us of character. It reminds us of what God looks for. Remember Samuel goes to the house of Jesse, uh, David's father, because the Lord tells him out of this house will come the next king of Israel. And so he has this parade of David's brothers go before him. And, and he says, oh, that's a good, ooh, that's a big, ooh, look, you know, ooh. And he gets all excited about all he sees. 
And, and we're told in 1 Samuel 16, verse 6, so it was when they came that he looked at Eliab, the, the brother of David. He looked at Eliab and he said, surely this, the Lord's anointed is before him. This has got to be him. Big guy, tall guy, you know, features, looked like John Wayne. Maybe he walks like John Wayne, you know, whatever. I mean, just, he's got whatever it takes. And, and, and the Lord says to Samuel, do not look at the appearance or at the height of his stature because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And remember what Jesus said in Mark 10:44. He says, and whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. We all begin with service, and we continue as servants. And so as the names of these uh, 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 servants were, were, were given, verse 6 now of our text, we can finish off here, whom they said before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. And the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Some people might wonder why the apostles would lay hands on these men. Why would the apostles lay hands on these men? I mean, all they were doing was providing for the practical needs of widows. Do you have to be spiritual to do that? Please remember this, that practical service is spiritual service. Practical service is spiritual service. And how do we know this? We know it in this whole passage we read today. The same Greek word that is used for distribution in verse 1... What is the word? Diakonia is the same word that is used for the word ministry in verse 4. Where the, this, where the apostles say, we will continue in the ministry of the word. Same word, diakonia. So even the apostles themselves were deacons to the word of God. It was the same word. Practical service, spiritual service. Practical service is spiritual service. You see, we should count it a privilege to serve the Lord in practical as well as spiritual ways. We serve the Lord. We see trash out there, and the, you know, there's a trash can outside. We see, well, for the Lord, you know. Why? Because there are no unspiritual burdens. There are no unspiritual burdens that aren't seen by the Lord. He sees our heart when we do anything. By the way, He also sees our heart when we complain about anything. (laughs) Don't forget that. So remember what Jesus did before going to the cross. We're almost done here. Remember what Jesus did before He went to the cross? You all know what He did. John 13. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel, and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet to wipe them with a towel with which he was girded. 
is not beneath the Lord to do a slave's job. And he says, what, I, what you see me do here, I do as an example for you to do to each other. Serve one another. What is the outcome? When the Sanhedrin tried to destroy the church by wanting to kill the apostles, didn't happen. Satan was defeated. Satan tries to divide the church by dividing the Hebrews and the Hellenists. Satan fails. What's the result? We're told that the word of God spread. It increased. The number of disciples multiplied greatly. Multiplication kept going on. The ministry of God's word continued to go forth despite the potentially divisive issue that was certainly diffused powerfully by God. The strain, uh, the, I should say the strategy of Satan failed to materialize. The church did not divide and the apostles were not distracted from their calling. The church continued to grow, even attracting some of the opposition which should remind us that if many Jewish priests could be saved, so could our hard-hearted loved ones too. That should always be a, a thing that we should remember. If those high priests could be saved, so could the hardest person that we know in our lives. And so this was all definitely new wine and new wineskins. A new and living way through Jesus Christ. The old wineskin wouldn't have contained it. There was a new wineskin. Because there was new wine. And hopefully most of those high priests laid aside the old wineskin. And became new wineskins. The enemy tries to divide and conquer. But Jesus unifies and strengthens. Let me leave you with the words of Paul. I'm already a little late. Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 17. Notice how this ties into what we've just read and what we've just studied. Paul says, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, Bearing with one another and forgiving one another, if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, in all wisdom teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And notice this, and whatever you do in word or deed, whatever you do in word or deed, whatever you do in serving tables, whatever you do in picking up trash, whatever you do in helping the needy, whatever it is that you do in word or deed, Whatever you do in washing feet, in humbling yourself, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Shall we pray?